Does anybody want to try to introduce the book, like just in a standalone way before we, we jump straight into like those kinds of questions? Well, why would a Wyoming Red Star want to read this book, you know, and start their study, their study sessions with, you know, this text? What about this text is, you know, attractive for that? I, I guess, I mean, I can talk about why we chose to read it, if that's kind of in like what our goals were with reading it. And um, I guess we were looking for something to be able to do together um, while being so far apart from each other because um, a couple of our members, um, Adam and Sean are in Laramie and I'm in Jackson. And so um, we weren't really doing a lot and we wanted to be able to begin organizing. And a big question that we had about organizing was like, um, how do we, how do we become educated? How do we study? How do we, um, study leftist theory? Because it is really difficult and dense. And most, what most people tell you to do is, you know, just read theory or just Google it or whatever. And we were really struggling with that, or I was at least, and I just generally struggle with reading and reading comprehension and have for a while. Um, and so I pitched it to, and oh, I posted on Facebook and got a lot of really good feedback from some other comrades um, in the Marxist Center and elsewhere um, who recommended reading an article on The Guardian. I'm, I can't remember what article it was, um, but it mentioned Pedagogy of the Oppressed and that it was um, an essential for anybody interested in engaging with education. Um, in a leftist space. And that's exactly kind of what we are looking for is how do we educate ourselves and help educate, you know, others about, or like, you know, just like help others be more aware of their being in the world pretty much. And so that's why we chose pedagogy of the, of the oppressed. Yeah, the only, or so the, the article that um, Mel mentioned is uh, what does an inclusive study group look like um, on regeneration, which is uh, the mouthpiece for the Marxist Center. Um, and I think one of the things that that, but one of the questions that that article peaks in particular that um, I think was of interest to us in Wyoming Red Star is like how you host, how, how you almost do uh make your time work like twice as effectively for you in terms of the context of a study group or political education or something like that um because a lot of times there's a certain amount of descriptive language that you need to acquire to be able to engage in like especially left spaces right um so that kind of to the outsider looks like gatekeeping and and um less a I don't know, it, it functionally performs the role of gatekeeping. How would we call it? How would we say that? Um, so we found ourselves in a position where we needed to weigh in on a particular um, political question within our organization. Uh, and we didn't have the language to do so effectively at the same time that we were also recognizing the need to do um, some sort of uh, political education process in our own organization, um, while knowing that there are other people that were asking and answering the same questions on, in their own independent research, like both uh, in our workplaces and in our, our broader communities, right? So we, uh, we approached this article as a jumping off point for a way to do uh, political education and revolutionary study groups that are more outward focused uh, in the sense that they incorporate people, not just from the organization that's putting them on, um, and they uh, use that engagement not only to to drive um, to drive like the liveliness of the dialogue in these study groups, but even the content in certain uh, instances, and to to and not to place these texts on like a pedestal, but to place them in a place where. Uh, we can engage with them directly and find applications in our own lives and find how they dialogue with other texts that we may have 
uh, read in, in, in terms of trying to learn the theory or whatever, um, but also take away like concrete applications that we can then translate into organizing, so. Yeah, man, well said. Um, I'll say that since my time is limited, um, I am maybe the listener might like uh, derive that I'm actually not from Wyoming. Um, I'm from Tampa, I'm from an organization in Tampa. Um, I'm not representing the organization though. I came uh, solitarily uh, to uh, participate in actually one of the best reading groups I've ever been a part of. So, you know, um, I wanna thank uh, everyone here for doing that. But uh, I, I, I came because the organization that I'm doing, uh, an organization, the organization I'm doing is doing weekly shares in the park. And there's many organizations that do uh, mutual aid uh, shares, but many times I think that mutual aid can be can fall into the same charity trap, where you're just uh, giving, you're just being in a in a place in your in your giving, and there's no reciprocity. And uh, we, I don't know what reciprocity looks like until I might see it, but what I think that uh, the pedagogy of the press does, um, especially well, especially in chapter three. Um, is it uh, gives a sort of a systematic investigation for what dialogue is as well, it's like scientifically in the Marxist sense. Um, it gives, uh, the author is wholly a uh, dialectical materialist. Uh, he claims often that things are dynamically changing and transforming because of internal uh, contradictions and that these contradictions don't come from anywhere else, but the world themselves. He makes no overture to abstract processes that don't, aren't immediately anchored to the real world. And, and, um, and our world, especially that, you know, the, the process that he's describing is dialogue. And uh, so I, what I learned a lot through this book is that dialogue can be, a, a, can be, you know, understood scientifically. And uh, that that's, something that I think can help apply to our weekly shares is that we have to engage in dialogue in order to understand what people's problems are. Um, and that's probably clear from the many references that it makes to Mao and Lukash, um, especially Mao where we're, uh, our, our organization has sort of a mass party, you know, tint to it. So we're have a Maoist sort of influence. So we're trying to figure out how people themselves can develop the problems uh, can develop the solutions to their own problems in a way that uh, you know that this book makes like kind of clear. Uh, so that's what I wanted to say and what I learned from the book and why I think it should be read. Awesome, thank you, Matt. We were uh, very pleased to have you uh, in in the study group, and you contributed a lot of a lot of great things. Um, I wanted to run with one of the things that you mentioned. Um, First, in kind of like laying out the book, perhaps uh, just so that we have some sort of a roadmap where uh, we can lead people through. Um, the prefaces and introduction um, obviously serve to kind of locate the book in the context of like what it's responding to in time and the, the context uh, of the author, in particular, Paulo Freire in uh, Brazil in the uh, I think like the 70s to to 80s is when he was writing and taking uh, and, and accumulating his experience in the form of this text. Um, and then in chapter one, we get a, a very good description of the, uh, the method of revolutionary pedagogy, um, one that goes all the way down to like the core of like our being um, as social beings uh, in, in, a, in that like Marxist materialist sense that we're talking about, but one that unfolds from the dialogic encounter between uh, individuals um, and uses a lot of language that spills out from that, but otherwise is like generally some sort of like Marxist humanist description for like how we know the things that we know as social individuals. Um, chapter two is his like description of the banking model of education and how uh, a revolutionary pedagogy needs to invert that relationship in so many ways um, before we get into the uh, concrete um, method that is proposed in chapter three in, in the uh, way of, he calls them, I think, uh, 
or social investigations, perhaps. It is an, inv an investigation process that he's describing in chapter three um, to arrive at some pro program contents of education for, for an area and for a community and one that builds up from the, uh, the dialogic method that he's described earlier in the book. And then we go from this uh, set of more concrete prescriptions for how you engage with the people as somebody um, seeking to organize in an area uh, to the broader implications again uh, in chapter four and some additional context that uh, maybe some of these descriptions can give in, in ways in which um, some of his concepts of, of themes and uh, false consciousness and stuff interact as well. Um, so from from that, we're probably gonna, as as people who focus on organizing in our lives, we're gonna be mostly focused on the um, content from chapter three uh, as a result of that. Um, and, and that's probably neither surprising nor is it unique. Um, Counterpower, one of the fellow travelers, uh, ex-Marxist center members um, in their published book devotes a whole uh, subchapter to the process of social investigation that they cribbed directly from um, Frary. So clearly other people within the milieu are um, taking insights from this as well. Um, and, and that's what we've elected to focus most of our time and attention on and how that applies uh, in our uh, daily organizing tasks. Um, so that said, does anybody want to start um, chiming in on any of the specifics uh, between the general, like the dialogic method as a whole, um, revolutionary pedagogy, um, or the beginnings of, of some of the important concepts in chapter three um, that we can apply to our to our organizing, um, that of the the investigation process, the, the reciprocity between investigators and co-investigators and the people, um, generative themes, mysti mystification in the way of myths. Uh, does anybody have anything that they would like to jump off of there based on our discussions? Yeah, um, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll venture is like in the very beginning of chapter three, there's the tension between action and reflection that's offered. Um, you know, uh, I, I think it's very easy to become habituated into a sort of activity. Um, again, coming from that place of doing a, a practical touching grass activity, like giving food out in the park, um, it's very easy to become habituated in that. And that every action that we take warrants um, a reflection and maybe if I recall the beginning of chapter three right that's necessary for um, naming the world I think that's the connection um, which he, he kind of does interestingly because naming for Freira is um, also naming the world is also actually changing it so it's it's fun he can he kind of could deliberately conflates naming something and changing it um, and I think that comes directly from this tension between action and reflection. So I'll put that out in the middle. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right with that. Um, his any any sort of action uh, for him, if it's if it's embodying some sort of like true praxis, uh, incorporates um, in some sort of uh, unity that necessary moment of of reflection. Um, that then allows you to apprehend yourself as like a, a conscious historical subject who can change the world. So uh, yeah, he, he builds off at the beginning of that chapter of that chapter, um, this, this description of the world involved in, in naming and narrativizing it, the world as historic subjects and one that implicates us as actors that are able to like transform the world around us if we can recognize the tasks, uh, the tasks at hand and can can apprehend through dialogue um, those uh, contradictions in the world around us um, that, that like in the context of human subjects narrativizing the world look like complexes of themes. So I guess 
chapter three, I, I'm having a really hard time like connecting my thoughts right now. And so it's hard for me to directly respond to what you're saying. Um, and I, and I keep thinking like, Oh, I'll say this, I'll say this, but then I, I'm like actively listening to you and then I forget what I want to respond to. So sorry about that. I'm just going to go, I guess. Um, so chapter three for me was really, really helpful because in like leftist organizing spaces, there's like a big push, especially within the Marxist Center, um, which Wyoming Red Star Coalition is uh, part of, um, of base building. Everyone says base build, base build, go talk to your neighbors, go talk to people, um, you know. And for me, for a long time, I really didn't know like what to talk or why we were talking, you know, or like, I, I understood that the goal was organizing, but oftentimes when you like go and talk to people, um, it's scary and intimidating for them. Um, and, and Freire in chapter three, I mean, I guess throughout the book and in chapter four a lot, um, goes, talks about like why you can't do that and why that doesn't work. Um, I just want to say something real quick. What you said is good. Yeah. is like, you can't go talk to someone like we can't go knock on someone's door and like say hey what are your problems you know it's like tail right. it's tail it's tailism you know it's like uh -huh. uh, i mean that's what i was criticized for something like that i was like we should like go talk to people and they're like well you know you can't just go ask people what their problems are you know like um you know it's i don't know that's that's something what you said which kind of Thank reminded you. me it has to be something more yeah. deeper than that Thanks. Thank you for that. Yeah, it is. It is. It totally does. And I guess that's what Ferrari says is that like um, the way that the world is coded to people um, or like, I guess they're, um, what am I trying to say? That the awareness that people have of the world is often coded um, by the oppressor um, in, in kind of a way maybe I'm not saying the right that the right way but um but it is coded um I I think I'm gonna build off that a little bit uh in suggesting that like in addition to the to the issues of like not having some sort of um reciprocity in the way that we approach people uh or not reciprocity but not having some sort of relationship that involves like um unveiling the world to both uh, organizers who are approaching a place or a people uh, to do their organizing um, and, and then the people themselves who uh, like people engaging directly in base building might otherwise be described as tailing um, is a second question that kind of in certain ways um, precedes the first and that's whether or not there's there is trust established even in the process of like naming the world with other people um in in Freire's language um and he offers like some very good uh concrete ways in which we can incorporate like particular values that uh that make us um more trustworthy in the context of like interpersonal relationships, which as anyone who's done any sort of organizing can tell you like that's the foundation of not just like uh, the strength of an organization, but organization itself. It's just a, it's an aggregation of all of these interpersonal relations all the way up. Um, but if we are to truly create relationships with these people uh, and, and more maybe more importantly, um, help them facilitate the creation of relationships and collectivities um, at that base level. Um, there's a set of ethics that he suggests uh, help facilitate those sorts of communications. Um, I'm going to go ahead and and name those. He, he uses a explicitly like humanist language um, that comes out of his milieu in South America with like uh, liberation theology and stuff. But the values that he emphasizes are love of some social other humility and perspective, um, acknowledging that you don't have the full uh, context or information about a situation or an encounter with another. Uh, and then faith both in the people and each other as, um, as uh, reflected social others in the context of some sort of dialogue. Um, Matt, you wanna follow up on that? Yeah, um, you, you mentioned that love, humility and faith um 
maybe maybe humility, faith, and love. So faith isn't like at the very end, you know, but are, are like part of that milieu. But it's in talking to people today and in my experience growing up in Florida, those that like those values are still very much important to people. And um, I I think that you know we should hold on to those and try and like recover what those values mean as organizers. Um, because many people who I speak to who are not in left spaces to so to speak, um, and people who I try to follow up with, which I'll, I'll say parenthetically, people love when you follow up because they're, they don't, no one ever does it. Um, and I have, that's speaking from experience. Someone told me that verbatim, um, that, you know, we should recover what those mean. Um, they're important. They're important. And I think people will find them important. Yeah, I would say the, the other thing, too, to keep in mind um, when we consider what like some people might describe as like anachronistic values, especially compared to like some of the more like cynical takes that you can find around certain parts of the left um, is that these are also like almost verbatim exact opposites of the sorts of uh, like values that are incentivized by the social media platforms that like we find ourselves like communicating with people most of the time too. So like we kind of have to be taught to do these things again, especially in the context of face-to-face -face communication where you like do need to establish some sort of trust if you're ever going to ask people to uh, make some sort of leap of faith and like signing on or like agreeing to be part of like an organizing ask um and as a result of that like these do have to be inculcated pretty deliberately whatever name you have for them um and they're kind of an essential prerequisite in the context of like some sort of dialogic uh epistemology for agreeing on the same like set of information even by which you can like name and transform the world for for someone like fairy I think you you said it better than I could admit, and and uh, I do got to I do got to drop. Um, you know, I I want to say again that I love being part of this, but I think um, maybe trying it back to the encoding and decoding example that um, Mel brought up is that um, love, humility, and faith are very much Christian um, values, not exclusively, of course, but um, they're very much coded that way. And especially in our situation, they are, um, in my experience. Um, but in also in my experience as an organizer, um, you know, there are there are habits which are necessary, especially for establishing and face-to-face -face communication. There's something mysterious about how effective that is and resolving conflict um, that we have to try and uh, inculcate, as you said, and uh, decode um, and then recode it as revolutionary. And I, uh, as, as a revolutionary habit. Um, and uh, I, I know that Ferreira says a lot more that uh, y'all going to cover. Um, I, you know, regrettably, I can't be part of it today, but um, that's what I, you know, if I were to title some sort of analysis based off of it, you know, I would probably use those three words. And what I, when I bring what Wyoming Red Star um, had talked about in company, to my organization, the organization I'm a part of, you know, I'm definitely going to approach it from that, you know, perspective, um, you know, because, you know, there's many people who dislike us, but, you know, we're our own worst enemies too. And forming dialogue with others, you know, concomitantly means that we have to always refresh and, you know, wet our own dialogues with ourselves, um, you know, in order to, you know, actually prove a, an example, like an, a worthy, an org organization worthy of representing the working class, in my opinion. Um, but uh, I love you all. I, I have to go. Thank you so Bye much now. for being a part of this, Matt. Yeah, no problem. Well, next one. Yeah, thank you. Right, let's keep in touch. Well, you had a response to what Matt was saying. Okay. Yeah, kind of a response. So I think. Um, in engaging in dialogue, it's really important to see the human and other people. Because um, a lot of the times when we like, we, we talk, we're only focusing on like the topic that we're talking about, and we can become emotional and 
you know, feel very strongly and whatnot. And, and then we stop seeing the human in each other. And, and that's kind of what Ferrari talks about a lot is, um, is about humanity and seeing the human and others and knowing that they have their own perception of the world. And I guess basically what he talks about is how do we engage, you know, um, with them as humans with love, humility, and in good faith, you know, um, having faith in them that they are capable, you know, of, of uh, knowing who they are and what world that they live in, you know, because we can't go in just assuming that everybody is, um, oblivious and unaware because everybody to some point has an awareness of themselves and the world that we live in. Um, and so Ferrari just kind of talks about engaging um, on a human level. And so on page 63, I want to read a quote. Um, but before I read the quote, for I want to preface with that Ferrari does go over a lot um, that when we say they, we're including ourselves, like we are they, they are us, we are everybody, you know, um, and not that they are the people that we are going to study, but we are the people. So when I say they, I'm not talking about somebody other than me <laughs> um, or different, I guess. So the quote begins, almost never do they realize that they too know things they have learned in their relations with the world and with other women and men. Given the circumstances which have produced their duality, it is only natural that they distrust themselves. And so I guess that the first sentence there just kind of goes to say that, you know, like we, we are aware of our lives and we have to acknowledge that. And oftentimes, especially on the internet, that does not get acknowledged that we are still human. And, and that was, you know, it's funny because that was a really big eye opener for me. Um, and honestly in reading and like in reading this book and engaging with comrades every week on this, it, I think, you know, it's really helped me be more compassionate, which is nice. <laughs> and, it, and it's going to continue helping with organizing and engaging with people more um, authentically and to towards what we are trying to accomplish, which is organizing people, which they won't do if they aren't, um, if they don't believe or trust you, which is um a really big part of base building is um, that. So that's all I had to say. Thank you. And importantly, in some ways, trusting themselves too, to, to be that like actor on the stage of history, um, which, you know, Frary obviously devotes a lot of time to in the con in, in the uh, discussion of um, the humanist project and the unfulfilled potential of like human liberation that we can find in our daily lives um, in in the act of recognizing ourselves as historical subjects with certain um, limit situations imposed on us by the greater society surrounding us that allow us to uh, to overcome um, and eventually to arrive at some untested feasibility. Um, all, all these are, are terms that he uh, describes in detail in this chapter. Um, one of the things though that might be interesting to transition into next then is his idea of like thematics and how those reflect um, certain groups of uh, peoples, uh, how thematics relate to our lived experience, um, both uh, in the ways that they can potentially reinforce the status quo or ways that they can provide some sort of uh, like revolutionary culture in a certain sense. Um, and then how, uh, like which uh, broadest set of thematics, um, what Frary would describe as an epoch he situates himself in. Um, because I think that provides a lot of context for everything uh, about the book um, in its particular, all the way down to the language that he used, the, the same reasons why we're talking about things in, in terms of these like Christian values or like, um, or some unfulfilled like humanist project from enlightenment or something like that. Um, the answer can 
in many ways be found in his thematics. Generally speaking, his uh, his thematics represent, um, in some ways, the like organized contents of people's consciousnesses, uh, which for Frey very much can be um, one of like two situations. Right, you have some sort of uh, what other Marxists have described as something of like a false consciousness, where either you're distrustful of your place um, in history and your agency and your ability to affect change in some in a place as banal as like your daily life, um, or you're uh, you feel like you're in a position where you're silenced in such a way that like the only way um, to be to be seen, heard, or validated is one in which uh, you have your own culture reflected back to you, um, usually on the other side of some sort of paywall or like uh, political representative process. Um, so that those two represent these the the negative side of some of these uh, generative themes um, that Freire describes as being attached to particular peoples and locations that uh, kind of specify the set of um, structures in which they understand their own experience of the world and in, in which they make sense of the world. Um, that, that process would be the, the codification that we talked about earlier, which is that mediation between the structures of experience and history that feedback on the individual um, who then has to make sense of them as, some, as, as a conscious being um, and also intervene at the point of only being an individual in that sense. Um, yeah, so that's that's where he uh, builds up some descriptive uh, understanding of how we narrativize ourselves as individuals and how um, in apprehending the world through dialogue with, uh, with people in a place we can um, unveil the world and, and kind of come to that kernel of truth about the uh, the contradictions that are present in their place. Um, we can uh, show to them how the mediations are helping by decoding uh, existential situations that we see um, as organizers talking to individuals in a place. Um, this is typically uh, what organizers will describe as things that are like widely and deeply felt like if you can identify those and you can understand the mediation that's going on there the myths the the myths that they uh perpetuate um that uh kind of uh preserve the status quo especially for an area um though those are the the ways that you connect to people and you can kind of implicate historic tasks for for individuals in their uh, their fight against um, the, the banalities of, of exploitation and domination in everyday life. Um, so how about maybe we go through that uh, investigative or investigation process that Ferry lays out. Um, so the first part of it, and uh, we might get a little meta here, involves actually recognizing the relationship between people that come to a place to do some sort of organizing or investigation, um, what Freire would describe as revolutionary leaders, and then the people in a place and how to uh, encourage the processes of those people seeing themselves as conscious actors in the process. Um, so I think I'm just going to tease it there um, if you want to jump in now. I was actually not going to start there, but that is better. So thank you for starting there. <laughs> um, oh man, and now I'm gonna go, I have to go off my memory here. Maybe, do you wanna take it? Do you wanna finish your thought on that and then I can build? Okay, let's do that. Yeah, sure thing. Um, the the co-investigator, or, or sorry, the investigators or organizers in our context that are coming to a place um, have to be able to Engage the place, uh, engage the people in a place in the way that um, uh, that kind of like co-creates a set of conclusions about uh, situations uh, and, and particular tasks uh, or like organizing asks um, would would kind of be like the way that we're used to describing it uh, in their context, right? Um, and part of that process 
actually means like giving not giving as if we're handing down from above, but, but making sure that your process itself of coming to a people in a place involves them also doing the same sorts of work in terms of gathering information, um, uh, synthesizing data in the form of some sort of uh, like report or forum, um, and, and just generally speaking, being the person to, to go out and to be the connective tissue for a community um, and hold, like having one-on-ones with people, asking questions, making sure everybody's on the same page with respect to like things going on in that community, et cetera, which is like just things generally speaking in like neoliberal communities and like capitalism or whatever, we're, we're kind of, uh, we're not taught how to do particularly well um, unless you belong to some sort of uh, outside social structure, like a, like a church or, or like a lodge of some sort. Um, so that's his, that's the first step of his investigation process is like making sure that there are people in place who you can go through the process with and, and help them see, uh, how they themselves are actors in this process and learn things in apprehending the realities of their own situation, um, through dialogue. Uh, Mel, did you want to take it away from yeah. that? Yeah, thank you. Sorry. I'm just used to you being like, okay, go ahead, Molly. <laughs> so I'm like waiting for it. Sorry. And and we did this for like how many weeks? Like 15 weeks where we talked for two hours every time. So we're like, <laughs> we did this for a long time and had like a, a thing going. So I'm just doing that. But um, so I, I actually found my notes um, with the steps that I wrote. Um, that are, you know, like what Adam was just talking about. So I wrote um, step one. So you have to enter the community and schedule a meeting and explain objectives and methods. Um, and so basically like there are like what Adam was saying that you start out with organizers who need to, who want to begin an investigation. And so the first thing that you do is go into the community and you have to schedule to meet with people. Um, at that meeting, you ask for help and active presence from people. Um, and it's kind of funny because in this chapter, um, Ferrari is talking about like getting a group of like 20 people from this meeting or in this meeting, which is funny to consider in Wyoming because I feel like we would be really happy if like five people came. <laughs> um, and then after that, so after you have um, people in this meeting, you ask them to do something, you give them a job and, and and it's not like, you know, you are giving them a job to do. It's that you're all engaging in this work of investigating together and, and you can't do it on your own, basically. And so um, you're asking for an active presence of everybody and so that you're all there together doing this. Um, and then from there, you gather life data through observation vi visits. Um, and he talks about this on page 111 a lot um, to understand like what people's level of awarenesses of their coding um, and of their of the contradictions in their lives. And then from there, um, you have evaluation meetings. Um, let me see what my notes say. So you, yeah, so I guess um, in the evaluation meetings, he was suggesting also like meeting with psychologists and sociologists and having like a team of like 50 people to go into this investigative research, which was kind of funny um, for us to consider again, because we're in Wyoming. <laughs> um, so I guess um, that's kind of the steps that he put together. And then at the very end, he has recoding on page 114, where um, he goes through like pretty detailed steps of how to how to engage in communication of, of in the recoding process. Yeah, uh, I think I can expand a little bit on the, the process of decoding and recoding. Um, so one of the issues that organizers run into, um, especially uh, self-styled like revolutionary organizing, um, is that generally speaking, you have like rather limited means with which that you can affect change in the world as an individual. You only have a certain amount of time. Generally, that's like in addition to like working a, like an actual job that doesn't call for you to do this sort of stuff. Um, and as a result, you have like only a certain amount uh, 
of capacity that you can dedicate to these sorts of things. Um, so in the first place, you need buy-in from like the people of the community. Um, that's that's kind of the reason why you're getting co-investigators in this process. And eventually you're trying to leave behind some sort of like organizational structure with which people can, can identify and address the real problems of their community by themselves and for themselves, um, like in kind of some sort of like, like as some sort of Hegelian social subject or whatever. Um, so in the first place, we aren't taught to, to like apprehend a lot of these contradictions as they exist in the world. And the only way that we can get better data as far as like what we can agree on is happening in the world is through dialogue in the first place. Um, we have some set of myths or whatever that mediate the uh, our social and historical role in the world. That unconscious process is the codification or coding that happens between us receiving sense data and us like um, apprehending what is happening as an individual um, in the process of dialogue, we can decode a lot of that information as we unveil particular layers of these codifications or mediations um, that are making, or, or rather that are obscuring uh, the contradictions in place um, that set up certain, uh, certain social groups to exploit or dominate others. Um, so Frary's process in the context of an investigation is for us to go out into a place to gather up all this, li this lived ex data of experience um, and then to do uh, more or less like individual reports that get aggregated um, that are also done by the co-investigators uh, that give them that subjective experience of doing the kinds of work necessary to make sense of the world in dialogue um, by which we can settle on like a couple bigger contradictions. Um, I'll say that from our organizing experience uh, as part of um, the Red, of Wyoming Red Star, uh, we focus on tenants issues. So in certain senses, we're already like kind of jumping the, the ship here in the sense that we recognize that we're talking to a, a bunch of renters who that is the common experience amongst people. Um, and they're already in the same uh, sort of relationship on one side of a contradiction of exploitation as it as it pertains to the rent relationship. Um, and as a result of that, like, we, we don't have to look quite so far. The problem becomes how you make sense of the particular experiences of people who uh, might have had better or worse um, experiences in this process, how you uh, how you give individuals in dialogue when you're trying to organize people that validation um, of naming an experience that they went through in whatever general community it is and then how you link that to the uh, the rent relationship for instance in the case of like tenant organizing or whatever um, and that whole process we're trying to accomplish uh, with in Frary's model by recoding these existential situations in such a way that um, people see them as problems, uh, first and foremost, that they have the solution to, uh, and that explain in like a descriptive sense, uh, the actual uh, relationships of exploitation that they are living uh, daily, so to speak. Um, and finally, in that process, Frary, who, who had like a different situation in that he was an actual uh, he was an actual member of government, I think, at the time that he was writing this book, or he was employed by the government to do these sorts of social investigations uh, in the context of um, literacy uh, education programs, um, then translates this into some program for a place. Um, but as, you know, uh, revolutionary base builders, you could just as easily substitute an organizational, like a, a small organizational structure into the position of this program. Um, we've already established there are certain strategical or tactical things that are effective in this area between one-on-ones, uh, report backs, between having points of contact um, that are articulating uh, between all the members of a community and, and making sure that everyone's on the same page, uh, both in terms of 
being aware of what's happening in the community, but also um, those uh, potential tasks or asks for a community. Uh, and then you leave that behind in um, such a way that it uh, is self-sustaining and a robust system so that people have the means in place to protect themselves in what otherwise are just individual experiences of getting fucked over by landlords, for example. Um, did that description uh, seem to do the section justice? Yeah, thank you. That was really great, Adam. I was just gonna chime in and say, thank you. That was that was great highlighting on what I was saying or adding to what I was saying. Um, there's one other thing that uh, we actually didn't spend that much time talking about during our weekly meetings that I thought might be interesting to tackle um, today uh, that comes out of this section as well. And that's his description of a thematic fan. Um, Frary in describing these uh, popular assemblies with uh, kind of like breakout group structure from this section, um, he describes the problem of trying to uh, connect with people whose particular experience might not be um, spoken to enough to uh, buy into a larger program uh, or in our case to agree with like say organizational goals from an area and the way that he suggests that this can be resolved is through what he calls a thematic fan um, so if we recall his uh, themes are kind of the like narrativizing social and historical structures that we find ourselves within. Um, the thematic fan represents a relationship between uh, the, the particular experience of an individual who finds themselves um, in this set of historical and socially determined themes um, that is deeply felt if you want to use like organizer language. Um, it's a particular experience. It's, it's generally the thing that like, as uh, somebody politically engaged or what have you, you're speaking to, uh, to say like, I see you, I hear you, like your experience is valid. I respect your experience. That sort of thing is the particular. Um, and then this unfolds for like a community into some totality of the particulars of lived experience in those areas that represent like a minimum thematics for Frary, but that represent a totality for a people in a place. Um, and that totality is generally how you make your ask as an organizer is to say, we all experience the same relationship. Let's just say a rent relationship. Um, we know that there are several particular individuals whose experiences if we're if we're respecting and like acknowledging that these are these are happening in our community are heinous whether that be like these places are uninhabitable whether that be monthly eviction notices whether that be uh, exploitation of people on like fixed in incomes all for example um, we have to connect that particular back to the universal uh, or general um, and this uh, this kind of metaphor of a fan um, is, is Frary's attempt to do so within the realm of codifications. Um, so does anybody like, does anybody have anything that they think as far as like how effective that might be? Does that make that relationship a little bit um, more manageable or, or easier to switch between? I'd be interested to hear everyone's thoughts. I think um, that I had a really different image of the thematic fan, but I, I also understand better now, um, I guess what Ferrari was saying based on what you were saying, Adam, um, which is like interesting and important for having study groups like this and for, um, you know, like seeing the humanity in others and knowing that like, you know, Adam and I read the same book, but totally understood this content differently. And it's important to share and learn. And it's a great way to learn more or be able to read more into the book because everybody has different interpretations. And my interpretation of the thematic fan was not 
of that, it's like a way to um, communicate and kind of see how our themes are intertwined and similar and how we have shared struggle, but more of that like themes fold. I guess, I guess it kind of is my, my, I guess my uh, imagery in my head was different of that. It was more like an accordion folding of like a piece of paper that unfolded into other paper, other people's paper. So each, each like accordion fold represented like these um thematic fans that kind of mushed into each other or folded out into each other into these common themes that everybody shared and um that is really important for organizing because that is like the basis of what you know um is required is that seeing that we are all oppressed we are the majority and we all are oppressed um and you know we can't start from that point. That's not a good starting point of going out to people and saying, hey, we're oppressed. But of that, you know, saying, hey, we both share these things and, and here is the information that we have about it and here's what we're noticing and actually making observations of ourselves in the reality that we live in together um, and, and seeing it on that shared level and not so much on our like folded up fans that are all closed you know you have to be able to unfold those fans and open them up and they pour into each other and you have to be able to see how they connect and how they interact and how they're shared yeah and i think the interesting part is that however you conceptualize it the the actual like motion of folding and unfolding a fan does indicate like kind of the idea of like intersectionality or like standpoint and how that relates to um to like general or universal um relationships contradictions that sort of thing um so like as broad as the oppressed oppressor relationship um if we're using Freire's uh development and language or the wage relationship is like another one of those uh general or universals um, and, and acknowledging that not everyone's going to experience those things the same, um, part particularly, uh, and that as a result of that, like, we have to be able to, to, in dialogue with individuals, acknowledge that, and, and, and that, like, the resonance of naming, of, like, seeing and hearing these sorts of existential experiences, um, is, is how you build rapport with individuals and build the relationships that organizations are founded on. You can't just approach an area with like, you know, I wanna do a rent strike. Like there, there's several things wrong with that statement, but like not the least of which is it's never gonna be I, it's always gonna be groups of uh, individuals in dialogue in some sort of organizational form. And you're prescribing something at the outset as if it is a general condition that people importantly can recognize as such. Um, so in your one-on-ones, you have to be able to like go back and forth between what is like a deeply felt effective particular experience and go back to like what is more widely known like aggregated common experience for an area or, or for a particular relationship like a, like the wage relationship or the, the, the rent relationship. Um, and, and whether or not you, you, you choose to describe that in particular words means less than the act, the, the mental image of like the process by which you can unfold that particular into a, a more general or into like intersecting fans with other individuals in place. Uh, and, oh, and I, I went ahead and lost my train of thought finally. <laughs> Man, it happens to the best of us, huh? Well, and, and just to kind of add a little bit more to that, sometimes like it's really hard to be aware of something before you like become aware, aware of something else. And so then the bigger picture unfolds and then you have like a, a grander picture and then you realize that, oh, I'm actually, 
because I've, I've had this happen before where a friend is talking to me about something that they're going through and, and then years down the road in hindsight, like I go through something and I'm able to say like, Oh, I was actually going through that exact same thing, but I just wasn't able, I wasn't there yet to be able to see, you know, that we did, that we did have a shared struggle. I was just, my perception of that was wrong or not wrong, different at the time, or my fan was folded and I wasn't, you know, I had different codes um, that were, or mystifications going on or whatever um, in my brain. So. Um, that, so that's the last of the concrete takeaways that I had like settled on from this section. Um, there is some interesting, uh, there is some interesting content towards the end um, that I think like you have to read through Ferrari's particular experience um, in kind of recovering some sort of like program content uh, for education uh, in particular, but oddly also gets like seized upon pretty heavily in counterpowers um, reading of this section. I don't know if it's worth going into that or not. Um, it's, it's interesting if nothing else uh, in particular, because I don't really think that we can kind of marshal the resources necessary um, as individuals in a lot of instances uh, or, or as uh, groups of like working class organizers to, to be able to like create some sort of program around uh, elevating consciousness in quite the same way that Ferry might have been able to. Um, so that's, I think, one of the reasons that we chose to focus on the, uh, the ways in which this is uh, engendered through the process uh, of, of going into place and having these sorts of organizing one-on-ones and leaving behind durable structures for which people to um, defend themselves against exploitation and domination, less the eventual goal of establishing some sort of program um, that, that leaves behind kind of like codifications for how to do this effectively. Um, and in, I mean, interestingly enough, hopefully this process for us has been that in the sense that like, hopefully we're leaving behind a way that you can approach uh, radical education, revolutionary pedagogy, outward facing study groups in such a way that leave people ready to engage with theory, to incorporate it in some reflective turn and apply it to their practical action um, as organizers and communities um, who, are, who are set on trying to help people realize their full potential as like human subjects that can and must liberate themselves if we're to move on from this like hellscape that we we live in and uh yeah so that that i mean might be a good place to end if nobody else has anywhere that they would like to take this um thanks um yeah i guess like the importance of this you know this the steps of investigation and what the investigation process is um and, you know, like having awareness of our own humanity and our relationship to the world and its influences on us and our influences on it and each other and everything is that um, a lot or like or, or education is a part of organizing and you're not going to be able to escape that. Um, and, and you and and this is the way that you engage, you know, this is a great um way to engage with people um, in education and finding out what education people need, you know, and what we need and what we need to be aware of and how we build awareness and, um, and be engaged and have an active presence because, um, you know, we are intelligent beings and so we have to engage that as well. So I just, I think that education is a major part of this and, um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paula Ferrari is a great book for organizers to um, kind of learn how to do that, I guess. I, I think that's, I think that's the biggest takeaway from the book at the end of the day is that like, you can, you can think that uh, all you want, that you have the perfect political line, that all that is required is going to a place and so like, intervening in material circumstances in this prescribed way that you've already settled on. 
Um, but the reality of the situation is that all of these social movements that um, end up historically looking revolutionary are all massively popular. Uh, and the way that you intervene and win the people over and uh, make sure that like the, and especially in Frary's context, you make sure that people don't just adop, adopt the uh, trappings of becoming oppressors themselves is through an eminently pedagogical process, through a, a process by which as struggle is heightened, uh, we learn more about the world around ourselves and only through dialogue with each other. And we do not, we don't section ourselves off from um, people that, you know, others would describe as like the unwashed masses or anything like that. We, we actively like get, like go into communities and like do the work of talking to people one-on-one -on -one and recognize that we don't have the perfect answers to any of this ourselves. And we're learning just as much as everyone else in that process. And uh, that's the only way that the pedagogy can be remade um, in Ferrari's words. Uh, and I think with that, that's that's probably um, all from, from us here at Wyoming Red Star. And uh, if you are interested uh, in, in working through some of the like educational materials that we've developed in this process. Um, hopefully, uh, there will be links uh, in the description of this podcast for you to poke through. Um, thank you so much. Uh, any final input from anyone else? No, thank you for listening. And if you're interested in um, joining us, feel free to check out our Facebook page, uh, message us um reach out respond to the podcast um how whatever works best for you we'd love to hear from you thanks so much guys